Over the past few weeks, we've been discussing the first discourse of the Buddha after his enlightenment, turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. He opened it with a discussion of the middle way and then an outlining of the Four Noble Truths, the truth of dukkha, which is to be understood, the truth of the origin of dukkha, craving, which is to be abandoned. So tonight we'll explore the third of these Noble Truths, the cessation of dukkha, which is to be realized. So these are the words from the Buddha's discourse. And this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, and letting go of that very craving. And in another place, in another sutta, he said, formerly when I lived the household life, I enjoyed myself, provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasure. On a later occasion, having understood as they really are the gratification, the defects, the disadvantages, and the release in the case of sensual pleasures, I abandoned craving for them. I removed the fever of sensual pleasures, <coughs> and I dwell without thirst with a mind inwardly at peace. There is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. So it's pretty straightforward. And this is a very unambiguous and clear declaration of what frees the mind. remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, and letting go of that very craving. But can we even imagine a mind free of craving? I think it's hard for us even to imagine, well, what might that be like? I think we resonate more with the famous prayer of St. Augustine, where he said, Dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And so we might have (coughs) the goal of the end of craving in mind, but are we really ready to let go of desire, of craving? A few years ago, I was on retreat, and in reflecting on this third noble truth, I began to understand the Buddha's words in a different and more immediate way. Because previously, I had always understood this truth, the end of craving, really as some far-off goal, you know, as, as the end, the final end of the path in the distant future. Yes, I'll practice and practice and practice, and maybe someday I'll come to the end of craving. So it was always seen as a future goal. Or maybe as some special meditative state that one might reach in meditation, and then we try to hold on to it. But in this particular retreat, as I was sitting and reflecting a bit on the Buddha's words, 
I also began to see the possibility of experiencing the end of craving now, in each moment. Not as something in the future, but as a practice which we can undertake moment to moment. And when we explore in our experience, you know, directly for ourselves, <coughs> the meaning of the Buddha's declaration, how the end of craving is the cessation of dukkha, we can see for ourselves very directly when craving, when desire is present in the mind, how it obscures the natural ease, the natural openness of mind. And how in moments, and it may be just for moments, but we can get a very clear experience and recognition of it, in those moments when the mind is free of desire, free of wanting, free of craving, we can recognize in that moment the taste, the intimation of happiness and of peace. We have so many examples of this in our everyday lives. I remember some time ago, I was down in New York City. I was just walking down a street. It was one of the, one of the big avenues. Maybe it was Fifth Avenue or something. And just a lot of you know, great stores and shops. And I was walking down the street and my mind was really engaged in just looking and seeing and wanting because there were all these great things, you know, to want. And I was just in it. It was just seemed very ordinary to me. That's what you do when you walk down the street, you know, and you see all these things. But then it happened a few weeks later. I was back in New York, the very same place, walking down the very same street, and for some reason my mind was completely free of wanting. I was just walking down the street and seeing it all, but without any movement at all of the mind reaching out for or wanting or desiring. And because the previous experience was still fresh in my mind, the contrast was so clear of how when the mind is in the grip of wanting, of craving, it's as if we're being pulled out of ourselves. The craving begins to dominate our experience. And this was not some big obsessive addiction. It was just kind of the ordinary stuff of life, how we are in our lives. But to see that in contrast to the mind that was free of that, it was so revealing because there was such a greater sense of ease. So as a simple experiment, <clears throat> you know, in the time that you're here. And this retreat time is a, is a fantastic time to look at this because the mind is relatively undistracted and we can watch carefully. Notice the next time a wanting, a desire, a craving arises in the mind. It can be for anything. You know, it can be to alleviate some discomfort, it could be f for a cup of tea, whatever. Notice when the craving, when the desire is there. And if you remember this, just be with that. Feel what it's like. Feel the experience of that craving. And then simply observe, simply watch at a certain point, <coughs> 
without doing anything at all about it, the craving and desire will go away because everything is changing. And then notice the quality of your mind in the moment when it leaves. And right there in that moment of transition, there will be a very clear understanding of the second and third noble truths of how craving and desire is the cause of suffering and how the letting go of craving brings about a mind state of peace. So we begin to see it for ourselves. It's not just Buddhist philosophy. Tulku Ergin was one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters of the last century. And in his teaching, he spoke very often of practicing the recognition of the nature of mind, that is, its empty, aware nature, which is another way of describing the mind free of craving and free of clinging. And he talked about it in terms of practicing that recognition for short moments many times. So it's not a state that somehow we'll find and then try to hold on to and sustain, because that can become just more grasping. But rather we recognize this mind free of desire, free of craving. We recognize it for short moments, but many times. And as we do this, we start rewiring our brains and our minds, and we learn instead of our habituated taking refuge in desire as a source of happiness, through this practice of short moments many times of experiencing the mind free of wanting, of really feeling what it's like in those moments, we begin increasingly to trust this place of ease within ourselves. There are many different methods, vocabularies, and even different metaphysical descriptions regarding the nature of freedom, of ultimate freedom, in the various Buddhist traditions. But even though there's this variety of method and terminology and metaphysics, there is one common understanding of what frees the mind. And that is liberation through non-clinging. And this phrase is found throughout the Pali Suttas. When we read the discourses, we come across that phrase so many times liberation through non-clinging. And it's also in many of the teachings of the great Tibetan masters and Zen masters. So there was a very famous Tibetan master, his name was Patrul Rinpoche. He lived in the 19th century and he was a vagabond monk. He didn't have a great big monastery and very poor, and he was just wandered from village to village, and he was very beloved by the people of Tibet. Uh, 
because of the way he lived. He had some very useful teachings about non-clinging. And he wrote about it, or spoke it, maybe it was written down later. This is by Patra Rinpoche, and it's called Advice from Me to Myself. And I love that because this is good advice (laughs) to give from we to ourselves. Listen up, you old bad karma patrol, you dweller in distraction. For ages now you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around, carrying out a lot of useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end, but keep spreading out more, like ripples in water. Does it sound familiar? Don't be a fool. For once, just sit tight. You beat your little drum and your audience thinks it's charming to hear. You're reciting words about offering up your body, but you still haven't stopped holding it dear. All this Dharma practice equipment that seems so attractive, forget about it. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. Even though you don't know how to practice, just let go of everything. That's what I really want to say. So, it's pretty direct. And he lived in 19th century Eastern Tibet. He could be talking to us right here now. It's the same patterns that keep us enmeshed in samsara. And the path of freedom, the way, the methodology, the technique, the method, even though we're elaborated in so many different ways, all comes down to one thing liberation through non-clinging, letting go of what we're grasping at, coming to the end of that desire and craving. So the question for us then is how can we experience and practice this? I mean, it's easy enough to understand. The question is how do we translate it into how we're living our lives? How do we practice non-craving and non-clinging first on a momentary level? In the moment, can we let go? And in the end, as what the Buddha called the unshakable deliverance of mind, the cessation of craving without remainder. So we can practice this mind of non-craving, of relinquishment, in different ways. 
and different Buddhist traditions highlight one or another of these methods. But one that's very familiar to us all is understanding that we can decondition, we can relinquish, we can abandon craving through an increasingly refined awareness of the three characteristics. The more clearly we see the impermanence of all experience, then the more clearly do we understand for ourselves the basic unreliability, the ultimately unsatisfying nature of phenomena. Why are they unreliable? Why are they ultimately unsatisfying? Precisely because they don't last. And this is something we don't have to take on belief. We just have to look at our own lives. We really need to be mindful of our life experience. And we can see this so clearly for ourselves. And through this wise, developing a wise and sustained attention, we also understand on deeper and deeper levels the selfless, impersonal nature of this whole unfolding process. That nothing actually lasts long enough to be considered self. So these characteristics we discussed last time in terms of the origin of dukkha, the Buddha, he called these three characteristics or he described them as being the downside of things, the defects of samsara of what makes it unreliable, unsatisfying. But there's a nice little twist here because there's an upside to the downside and it's helpful to recognize that. It's precisely because conditioned phenomena are unsatisfying that we're motivated to awaken. Seeing these characteristics clearly, seeing the defects of samsara, what makes it unreliable and unsatisfying, become in themselves the cause and condition for our liberation. And the Buddha pointed to this very directly. He said, if there were no drawbacks, dangers, no downside in the world, beings would not become disenchanted with the world. But because there are drawbacks in the world, beings become disenchanted by it. So it's precisely seeing these aspects, these three characteristics, seeing them clearly, that motivate us to awaken awaken from ignorance, to let go of the craving. But I think it's very illuminating to watch our own reactions to this teaching. How do we relate, just intuitively, in ourselves? How do we feel when we hear words like danger, downside, defects, drawbacks, disenchantment? 
You know, we hear those words, does, does the whole thing sound gloomy, you know, or fearful? I think for many people they do. They hear that and, hmm, that doesn't sound very appealing as a path of practice. But there's another possibility. We should check this out for ourselves when we do see things more completely. Now, the term Vipassana, the Pali word, literally means seeing things clearly. So that's what we're all practicing. We're doing the seeing things clearly meditation. And so to see, to watch, what's it like when our minds open to these aspects, when we do see things more completely, does it feel gloomy or does it actually bring about a sense of openness and a sense of relief? I think it's helpful to understand the word disenchantment because the Buddhist uses this word a lot as the precursor to awakening. And he talks about the various uh, links leading to enlightenment. Disenchantment often appears right before awakening happens, so it would be good to understand its meaning. Disenchantment means to wake up from the spell of enchantment. You know, it's like in the fairy tales. You know, something happens and who's ever under the spell, all of a sudden the right, the right condition happens and the person wakes up from being enchanted. It's waking up from the dreamlike state of ignorance. So I had an interesting experience of this. It was very revealing on my last retreat, just this last winter. And I had been reading a little bit about lucid dreaming and how to develop that ability. So I thought that would be an interesting skill you know, to be able. Lucid dreaming means that we're aware of the we're aware that we're dreaming while we're dreaming. And I never got too successful with it, but. The instruction was interesting. And, and so the author, who you know, had really researched this and practiced it a lot, he said one of the ways to develop this skill is, and particularly you know, in, the, in the early morning, if you just wake up out of sleep and you have you know, a few minutes of wakefulness, at that time <clears throat> of wakefulness, to reconstruct in the mind as carefully as possible the content of the last dream, you know, while it's still fresh in the mind. So, so we're rehearsing it with our conscious mind. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And then if it's a situation where we drop back into sleep again, with practice, the alertness that we had in the reconstruction of the last dream, so the theory goes anyway, that alertness will carry over into the next dream and will be aware that we're dreaming. Okay, so this was in my mind and I was you know, trying to practice it a little bit. But then later in the days, as I would be doing walking meditation, I'd be walking out, particularly outside, and I just noticed as I was doing the walking meditation, I began to notice more clearly 
how often there is a background layer, sometimes very thin, not, not sometimes in the foreground, just background thoughts, images, you know, fragments of stories, kind of going on as I was doing the walking you know, and feeling the movement. And I began to see them as the hardly noticed but ongoing creation of the world we live in. Because most of those background stories, thoughts, and they were very thin. They weren't particularly compelling, but they were there. Most of them, in one way or another, were self-referential. They were about memories or plans or desires or likes or dislikes, mostly revolving about some sense of a me in the world. Now, what was striking to me, there's, there's a point to this whole story, what was striking to me was that the experience of slipping in and out of these background stories and thoughts was exactly the same experience of slipping back into the dream state after being awake. And I realized that we are simply dreaming ourselves into existence that that's what's happening through the day. We're dreaming ourselves into existence. And I found that phrase, oh, dreaming myself into existence. It would come up many times during the day of my practice, and it helped highlight for me this whole movement of awareness and then just lost in some background story or thought or image or whatever with its attendant sense of self, and then kind of waking up. And by having that phrase come to mind, it really highlighted that whole process. And I began to see it much more often and much more clearly. So an increasingly refined awareness of all of the three characteristics of how we dream ourselves into existence leads to a disenchantment. We wake up from being enchanted. We wake up from the spell into a place of greater freedom. So sometimes we're aware of these characteristics on a macro level, because they're playing out at every level of experience. And one of the avenues for me for reflection about all this is in reading history. I find, I find it very interesting because it becomes a powerful reminder of the changing nature of all we take ourselves to be, of all we think is so important in our lives. And I remember some time ago reading a book about Genghis Khan. Now, I didn't know much about Genghis Khan, and I just the book intrigued me for some reason. So I picked it up. It was really interesting. He was 11th century, 12th century. But basically, he and his immediate descendants conquered all of Asia and must, much of Eastern Europe you know, and the Middle East. It was a huge Mongol empire that dominated 
this vast swath of the planet. So I just think, you know, back in those years, in the 12th, 11th century, that was the, that was the force to be reckoned with, touching everybody's lives. And now, you know, where is the Mongol Empire now? You know, it's just something that's so predominant over so big an area has just faded into, you know, faded into nothing. And of course, this, this is just one example. This same thing has been repeated endless times in history. But it was, it was just striking to me, you know, because it was so, something so big became so unimportant in terms of affecting people's lives. But even here, you know, just bring it back to more modern times, one of the things I love about New England, you know, and I'm sure you know, as you walk through the woods, you see just these miles of stone walls. This be, <laughs> when those stone walls were built, these forests were in here. There were, it was farming, you know, fields and goats and whatever. You know, and you see this, the foundations, the stone foundations of abandoned houses. And just with a very little imagination, you know, when people built those walls and lived in those houses and their lives were just as vital you know, to them as ours is to us. And yet, again, where is it all now? So we begin to really take in on a, on a visceral, on an emotional level, the meaning of impermanence. But it's so easy to get caught up in our dramas and our stories and inflate them, you know, to, to huge degrees where it becomes the most important thing in the universe. But with just a little bit of perspective, we say they're not that important. And they are going to fade, they're going to pass away, just like everything else. As we reflect on this, and, and this is not about subtle meditative states, this is just about what's obvious as we open to the world and look about us. A deep reflection where we take this in, it enlarges the context of our own experience. You know, things get a little bigger and it loosens the bonds of so much craving and so much attachment. Because we see the impermanence of it all. We see the emptiness of it all. It's something like the difference between being on the roller coaster of a child's emotions. You know, when you were the young child, just in the course of a day, <laughs> you know, the range of emotions of happy and sad and angry and excited and whatever, many, many times a day. And then the difference between that and, and adults hopefully growing equanimity and wisdom about the changing nature of things and we're less on that roller coaster ride and there's more of an ability just to hold it all with balance, to hold it all in a state of peace. In meditation practice, <clears throat> we can experience the disenchanting or the unenchanting, what wakes us up from enchantment, truths of 
change and unreliability and selflessness also <clears throat> on much more momentary levels. It's not only on the macro level. We can really begin to see it happening moment to moment, microscopically. We can see so clearly in our practice, as we're paying attention, that whatever arises, whatever arises in the body, in the mind, through our senses, whatever is arising has the nature to pass away, and that it's all happening very, very quickly. At first, when we first get a glimpse of this, when the mind can be present enough and settled back enough, relaxed enough, to open to this flow of rapid change. And it's not that we have to do anything to make things change. Things are changing all by themselves. So all we have to do is settle back into the knowing of what's already happening. So as we do, as we relax, as we settle back into that awareness, at first <coughs> it can be quite exhilarating, you know, because we're really seeing the solidity of everything break up, and it's quite exciting. And at this time, as the mind opens at that level, it's really the first time in our practice when the factors of enlightenment begin to all uh, be strengthened and come into balance. So the mind is, is in quite a good state at that time. But as we continue to watch this process, where the process becomes more predominant than the content, that is, we're directing our mindfulness to the flow of change itself. Then as we look deeper and we begin to see the continual dissolution of things, that everything that's arising is just continually dissolving, both consciousness and its object. You know, so the experience is of everything crumbling away. There's no place to take a stand. So this can be fearful and anxiety-producing. So we go through different stages and different perspectives when we're really seeing the dissolution of things, seeing impermanence from that perspective on a very profound level. But if we can stay balanced with that and recognize, yes, this is just another aspect of seeing the truth of change, and this is a difficult aspect. It's hard. It's, we're really seeing the suffering of it. But if we can open to it and just stay with it and be mindful of it, we come to a place of profound equanimity. And at this time, the practice is really going on all by itself. At this stage of equanimity, craving is greatly attenuated. Because here there's a fading of pleasant feeling. And what becomes predominant are neutral feelings. So the mind is very open, very spacious, very equanimous. The feelings we're having in the mind and body are mostly neutral. So there's not that tendency to want or hold on. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, you know, at this place in practice we begin to 
experience neutral feelings as more satisfying than pleasant ones because they're more subtle, they're more refined. So there is great subtlety and refinement in this place of imperturbability. It's called equanimity about formations. And it's said when we have a taste of that, it's said to be a foretaste of the mind of an arhant. So even well before we're fully enlightened, you kind of get a glimpse of what that mind would be like, the mind free of craving. So this is a bit of a description of it from Ajahn Jamnian, who is a Thai uh, meditation master and healer and quite a remarkable person and yogi. He said, at some point the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is seen as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away, a perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. And so this, this is really a place of great ease. There's no, there's no doing and there's no one doing. And it's just all unfolding by itself. And sometimes all objects disappear and all that's left is consciousness. But right here in these very refined and subtle states, we need to take great care because there can be a subtle attachment to this state of ease. And it really becomes an identification with awareness itself. We create a knower through identification with the knowing. It's so easy in this place of effortless open awareness to make a home of this awareness and have the sense of self settle right into the home we've made. And so we're creating, just on a more refined level, that same self-centeredness. So Andy Olensky, the director of uh, the study center, he's, he's, uh, he's a good poly scholar as well. He, he wrote something very uh, apt, I think. He said, consciousness is not a thing that exists, but an event that occurs. And we really want to be careful not to make a thing out of consciousness, out of awareness, because that's how we get caught in identification with it. But if we really see that consciousness itself is a process, then we stay free of that attachment. So the question is, how do we cut through the identification with knowing? Because we can see it, even though we get caught a lot by different sensations and reactions and we get identified with different emotions or thoughts, it's not so difficult to see that at least it's happening. We become aware of it. But to cut through the identification with consciousness, that really takes a great care. 
And different traditions use different methods for doing this. So this is from the Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw, you know, who addressed this very issue. He said, at times the number of different objects may shrink to one or two, or all may even disappear. However, at this time the knowing consciousness is still present. In this very clear, open space of the mind, like the sky, there remains only one very clear, blissful consciousness, which is very clear beyond comparison and very blissful. Yogis tend to delight in this clear, blissful consciousness. This is known as Dhamma Raga, that is lust for Dhamma. At this time, it simply has to be noticed, knowing, knowing, knowing. So we make the knowing itself the object of mindfulness. And we recognize the difference between being mindful of knowing and being identified with it. In some Tibetan and Zen traditions, there's another way of cutting through this identification with awareness. And that are the the various teachings that instruct us to look for the mind itself. Tuk Urgin would often instruct his students, well, look for the mind. Can you find it? Can you see it? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? Can you find the mind? And of course, we would look, and the students would look, and we look, and we look, and there's, there's nothing to find. And then they would say, the not finding is the finding. It's that recognition that there is nothing to find. And to, to really see and recognize what is the experience of not finding. So just as a little exercise. Can you find what's knowing the sound? Okay, clearly the sound is being known. But can you find anything which is knowing it? And then, what is that experience of not finding? When we recognize the not-findability of the mind. In that moment, the mind's empty, selfless nature is revealed. So in one way or another, through any one of a great number of methods, as all the factors of enlightenment, awakening, come into balance, as we ripen and mature that place of equanimity about all formations, at a certain point the mind opens to and realizes what is unconditioned, unborn. And the Buddha spoke of this in many different places. He said, O bhikkhus, and he's talking to us, there is that sphere where there is neither earth, nor air, nor fire, nor water, neither this world nor the rest, neither coming or going, there is an unborn, unbecome. I shall teach you the unformed, 
the profound. The Buddha is pointing very directly to the mind that opens to what is unconstructed, unborn, unformed. And in Pali, these moments of opening are called Magapala, translated as path and fruition consciousness. And it's what we chant at the end of the precepts. Irame silang magapalanyana sa pachayo hotu. May the sila, the practice of the precepts, be the cause and condition for the experience of this path and fruition consciousness. Now the path moment happens just once for each of the stages of enlightenment, and it has the power to permanently uproot certain defilements and to weaken the remaining ones. And it's this function which is so important, and the Buddha described Nibbana in this way. He said, and what bhikkhus is the unconditioned? Because, I mean, we can use these terms and they can be very abstract. The Buddha is just telling us very directly, what bhikkhus is the unconditioned? The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. So that's very, I, I like that description because it's very down to earth. It's not some big metaphysical, it's the uprooting of greed, of hatred, of delusion. So this then becomes the reference point for our own assessment of the various meditative experiences we have. You know, we can use this mirror of mindfulness to see as we have different moments which might be quite transformative. You know, there are lots of different profound meditative experiences, but we can use this mirror of mindfulness to see for ourselves, have the kalesas, the defilements, have they actually been weakened and at certain points uprooted or not? So we can, we can know for ourselves When the Buddha speaks of the end of dukkha, or the nibbana, the unconditioned, the end of craving, he's not talking simply about being in a good mood. That's not what this is about. Because the radical and uncompromising freedom of nibbana, the unformed, is that it is not dependent on conditions not dependent on conditions being favorable, not dependent on conditions at all. So this deeper freedom, you know, and it's the freedom of this third noble truth, the end of craving, comes about through a profound inner shift of understanding when the strongly held view of self, that wrong view of self, has been purified through the experience of the unborn, the unconditioned, the unformed. It's not surprising, though, given the variety of 
Buddhist traditions and teachings, that different traditions describe this experience of the unborn or the unconditioned in very different ways. And this is where traditions can become very sectarian and they get in conflict with one another because you can get attached to one particular description, one particular method. This is the right way, this is the best way, this is the highest truth. And I think often forget that there are many different ways of describing the same thing. In many suttas, this experience of the unborn is described as the cessation of conditioned consciousness. And there's one very pointed dialogue the Buddha had with a monk. Sometimes the Buddha was tough. He he was not afraid to, when he thought somebody had wrong view. So this was a dialogue he had with a monk called Sati, who had the view that it was the same consciousness, as it says, that runs and wanders through the round of rebirths. So the Buddha asked Sati, what is this consciousness that you say, the same consciousness that runs and wanders throughout rebirths? And Sati replied, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. Well, that's not so different from how we often view things. You know, that there's one knower in here, one consciousness that is the one that's knowing all the various experiences that happen in our lives. So this is not a, this is not a far-fetched belief. It's commonly held. But then the Buddha, he's, he came down very heavy on poor old Sati. He said, misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man, in many discourses, have I not stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness? So the Buddha is just saying very It's not that there's one consciousness which just runs throughout this life and through many lives. Have I not stated consciousness to be dependently arisen? It's arising in each moment out of conditions. The conditions change. That particular consciousness falls away, new one arises. Oh, the Buddha is very, very clear here. But another sutta, this is from the Long Discourses, and so from that perspective, the unborn is seen as the cessation of that changing consciousness, which is just dependent on causes. But in the Diga Nikaya, which are the long discourses of the Buddha, he describes it in another way. He talks about Nibbana, or the unconditioned. In this way, he said, consciousness without feature, without end, luminous all around. Here, water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. 
long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul, name and form, are without remnant, brought to an end. From the cessation of the activity of consciousness, each here is brought to an end. So in this teaching, he's really using the same word consciousness in two different ways. He's talking about the consciousness brought to an end, and then what remains is this consciousness without feature, without end, luminous all around. Well, what does that mean? You know, if consciousness, our ordinary consciousness, is brought to an end, what is this experience of the unborn? I was going to tell you, but it's getting late, so. (laughs) So we need to take some care with this. These are very subtle matters, but they're really about the deepest meaning of the path. You know, when when we really think of, well, what's our practice about? It's for this liberation, for this awakening. One of the great Thai masters, Ajahn Mahabua, who's considered to be an arhant, and very uncharacteristically, he wrote about his experience of enlightenment or awakening. You know, so you don't often get contemporary teachers who will at that level, who will really describe what happened. And he's describing the need at these very refined and subtle states for a lot of care. So I'd just like to read this just a little bit from his own description of his enlightenment. So once when I went to practice at Wat Do Dhamma Chedi, it's a temple, the problem of unawareness or ignorance had me bewildered for quite some time. At that stage, the mind was so radiant that I came to marvel at its radiance. Everything of every sort which could make me marvel seemed to have gathered there in the mind to the point where I began to marvel at myself. Why is it that my mind is so marvelous? Looking at the body, I couldn't see it at all. It was all space, empty. The mind was radiant in full force. Then he goes on to say, this radiance is the ultimate counterfeit. You hardly want to touch it at all because you love it and cherish it more than anything else. In the entire body, there is nothing more outstanding than this radiance, which is why you are amazed at it, love it, cherish it, dawdle over it, want nothing to touch it, but it is the enemy king, unawareness, ignorance. But luckily, as soon as I began to marvel at myself to the point of exclaiming deludedly in the heart without being conscious of it, why has my mind come so far? At that moment, a statement of Dhamma spontaneously arose. 
This too I hadn't anticipated. It suddenly appeared as if someone was speaking in the heart, although there was no one speaking. It simply appeared as a statement. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is an agent of birth. That is what it said. Okay, so in the midst of this extraordinary radiance, all that there was was radiance, he saw that the radiance itself was the king of ignorance, the king of unawareness. Because as long as there's any point of reference at all of a knower, that becomes the agent of rebirth, of this whole wheel of samsara. So this is the critical point. As long as there is identification with anything, any sense of the knower, then we're still bound up by the conventional conditioned mind. So through our practice of mindfulness and investigation and wisdom, we keep deconstructing all the constructions of self, all those moments of identification. And it is in short moments many times. We just see the arising, the identification with whatever, a thought, an emotion, the sensation, the knowing, the awareness itself. And we let go. And through that process, we come to a place of realizing the ultimate ease. As the Buddha said, just after his enlightenment, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. Now, and however each of our paths unfolds, as we develop these factors of awakening and the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, our minds increasingly incline towards this highest peace. This is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, the end of craving. Let's sit for just a few minutes. <clears throat> 